2: Spilled off the ball.
3: Will have to Welcome to Sound of Spurs podcast. This is episode number six, and we're very pleased to be joined by a guy who spent several years with the Spurs and uh, one of the first guys I got to know uh, with the Spurs back in uh, 2001. He is now an analyst for the New Orleans Pelicans, also a former analyst for the Oklahoma City Thunder, a solid NBA career and a solid guy. And uh, Antonio Daniels, very good to see you. Thank you so much. Welcome to Sound of Spurs podcast presented by Frostbank.
4: Well, it's awesome to be here. Thanks for having me. (laughs)
3: We did a radio show back in the day. I don't know if you remember that at are Cook Steakhouse. I do.
4: This was a long time ago. I it was your do. first venture into broadcasting. I do. It's amazing, you know, what God has planned for you. Mm-hmm. And at that time, along with other things, going to um, Sportscaster University and at Syracuse while I was still playing, when you start thinking about life after basketball. I remember I walked away from, from Sportscaster University like, man, there's no way I can do that. Really? Yes. The thing is, I, I came to realize at that particular time that you don't really respect someone else's craft until you have to do it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, professionals make everything look easier than what it really is. Steph Curry will go out and shoot a shot from the logo, and when you're sitting at home, you're like, oh my gosh, I can do that, until you go out there (laughs) and see how far the logo is, right? So the thing I didn't understand at that time was, when you're doing TV, and you have to continue to make a point, stretch your point out, while someone's talking in your ear. So it was like, you really have to multitask. And when you're at home, you don't understand all the intricacies that go into putting something together, even something like this. You know what I mean? Like everybody thinks that they can do it until they actually have to do it. So when I walked out of there, I was like, you know what? Yeah, maybe this whole media thing just
3: isn't for me. That surprises me because you're always a very good interview. Uh, you're very always very loquacious and outspoken and, and, and talkative. Uh, and you always had a great deal of confidence, at least as far as I was concerned. Mm-hmm. My perception of you is that you're always a confident guy. So I figured you'd go up there and kill it when you went to that school in Syracuse.
4: No, no it, it's – I guess maybe our definitions of killing it may differ, <laughs> so to speak, but – I meant killing it in a good way. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> it, it was, it was tough. Like certain things that I really had to do that I didn't know that I had mm-hmm. to do. So it's almost like I, I, I was a basketball player. That, that's what I've done since I was six years old. Obviously, that's I'm not a basketball player. That's what I did. That's not who I am. But that's what I did. So when it's time to start to worry about life after basketball. That's a that's a very very scary moment in your life. But when you're a basketball
3: player and you're the envy of so many people who would love to do that for a living, and you got a chance to play in the league and have a very good career, um, it almost becomes who you are, right? I mean, in a way, you have to almost make a conscious effort. I know, but you got to make that conscious effort between Antonio Daniels, the person, and AD number thirty-three on the court,
4: right? And, And the thing is, basketball can be taken from you at any moment. You know what I mean? Like God blesses us with certain things. And that's why I as I grew older in my career, like NBA guys are the most confident guys in the world why they're playing. Why they're playing. Because you know what they can always say? Oh man, you know what? I play for fill in the blank. You know, I'm I'm one of four hundred and fifty in the world. But then what happens when you're no longer playing? You know what I mean? Like who are you then? And I remember talking to a player for the Dallas Cowboys. And he told me while I was still playing, if you don't find something to kind of take your time, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Some, a, a goal to set, something to envision when you retire, it's going to take you to a very, very dark place.
3: The first guest we had on the show, A.D., was George the Iceman Gervin, Mm -hmm. who we all admire a great deal. I love ice. And, and of course, he started the academy Mm -hmm. uh, here in town. He's worked a lot with kids and uh, even with some older folks. Uh, And one of the things he always said, and he said it in the podcast, was he tells kids, make sure you have a plan B. Yeah, you want to play in the NBA. Yeah, you want to play Major League Baseball or play in the NFL. Not many people get to do that. You have to have a backup plan. And I'm sure that that's one of the things that he talks to the kids about is, okay, it's good to have the dream. But let's, let's have a backup plan just in but case. But the
4: thing is, even when you actually accomplish a dream, you still have to have a backup plan. <laughs> because the thing about dreams is it comes a time where you wake up. It comes a time where you're not dreaming anymore. Like, even for me, I was blessed to play 13 years, which if you would have told me when I was in high school, you'll be blessed to play 13 years in the NBA. Like, that's fantastic. But when you retire from the NBA, chronologically, you're still very young. You know what I mean? You still have the majority of your life left to live. So think of another occupation, you know, think of another occupation that starts when you're six or seven years old, that spans over 30 years. But when you're done, you're chronologically young. You can be a doctor, but it may start when you're 40. And then when you retire, you're 70. So when you retire and you're 36 years old, now it's like, shoot, now what? Right. Exactly. <laughs> I have played basketball since I was six or seven years old. Like, man, what can I do now? And, Going to SportsCast University really opened my eyes up to life after basketball. Let's
3: start at the beginning. Uh, Columbus, Ohio. Uh, What kind of a town was that growing up? Because I think of Columbus. uh, I spent a lot of time in Austin, obviously. And that's where the University of Texas is. Mm -hmm. It's where the state capital is. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's bigger now than Columbus is because it's blown up the last two decades. You've been up to Austin, you know. Uh, But what was it like to grow up in Columbus? And was everything kind of centered around Ohio State? Everything
4: was and is centered around Ohio State because there's no professional team. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember when I was younger going to watch a preseason game watching the Chicago Bulls play the Cleveland Cavaliers. Th- that's that's it. You know, you have Cleveland um, football. You have the Browns. You have the Bengals. You have um, the Cavs. That's about where it stops. Mm-hmm. And you have Ohio State football. O-H-I-O. You have Ohio the State football. Ohio right, State. Right, the <laughs> Ohio State football program. So for me, growing up in the inner city of Columbus, Ohio, I didn't, basically, I was... I stayed in the inner city of Columbus, Ohio, right? You know, that was really about it for me. All I did was me and my brother, my friends, we play basketball all day, every day. Now, Chris was your older brother
1: mm-hmm.
3: and um, uh, tragically he died at a very young age, 22. How did that shape you oh, a- at gosh. that time? And, and I don't want to bring back any bad no, memories, no, but no, but, no, but I know how much of an inspiration he was to you. And I know he was a very good player at Dayton, by the way, I think he was shooting over 60% leading the nation, uh, leading the nation in field goal percentage. Uh, but, You can't go through something like that at that age uh, without it having a profound impact on
4: you. Mm. Man, where do I start? You know, I I talk, anytime that I do any sort of professional speaking, this is something that I have to discuss because of exactly what you just referenced. It changed me and it shaped me. Um, It hit me different because he was my person. You know, we were 16 months apart. 16 months apart, He was six foot 11 though. Yeah. So we were different. He got the height change. Right, right, (laughs) exactly. We were different, but he is the person, he was my role model. He was the guy that I looked up to, the guy that I wanted to be like 16 months apart. And we were two years apart though. So my, when I went to high school, he was already a junior. You know, people ask you, you know, right now, like, why do you talk so much? When I went to high school, I was five foot two, but my brother was six foot 10. You know what I mean, so back then, even when I was smaller i I did a whole lot of talking so for a big chunk of your life, you were Chris's little brother i guess i was I was Chris's little brother until february February ninth 1996 mm-hmm. now that's the day that
3: you found out that he had passed um but you took that and made it a positive somehow right somewhat well somewhat. Uh, the best you could do uh, right. using him as an inspiration take us from that point on and what happened to your career and bowling green.
4: Well, what what it did at that particular it's it's amazing um bill because I can still remember that day even though it was 26 years ago like it was yesterday. I can I can walk you through every bit of that day starting with coach Arnega and Stan Heath walking in my dorm room with me. And Howard Chambers, who was my who was my roommate. Everything they told me at that time. Driving me to the University of Dayton to meet my mom and my two sisters. You know, mm-hmm. having the thing outside, like the ritual outside. Mm-hmm. Um, being put away in this like a little safe house, so to speak, to stay away from the media. Actually going and viewing his body. <sighs> all of these different things. Me and my brother, our big thing that we used to talk about all the time was we got to make it to the NBA because... We got to get my mom. We got to get our mom out to inner city. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Where it's drugs on the corner and gangs on the corner. We got to get her out of here. So it was, the whole thing was, okay, you buy her the house and I'm going to buy her the car. We had it all planned out. And when that happened, when God called my brother home, it was like at that particular time. Now that dream was just mine. You know what I mean? The guy that I dreamt about this, we used to lay in bed and talk about it all the time. His favorite player was David Robinson. That's what's so crazy. That's what's so wild. We had David Robinson posters all over our our bedroom. And when he got called home, it was like, okay, now this is a different kind of responsibility. Because if he's here, even if I don't make it, he will. Vice versa. Gotcha. You know, and when when that whole thing happened... I I basically it, it it triggered something within me that basically told me that you won't fail now. You won't fail now. Did you
3: have an idea at that point in time that you were gonna be a first round draft? No. Pick?
4: no. My my junior year in, in college? No. no. You must have made a heck of a leap. <laughs> you know what I you know what I've been told, honestly. I have been told by numerous scouts it's the biggest leap that they've seen at the college level, many of them as long as they can remember. I remember Coach Laranega, who's one of my favorite coaches I've ever played for in my life, by the way. He brought me into his office my senior year and showed me where I was on the draft board. So, you know, they do the whole mock draft, and I was like 160-something. Yeah. And he said, you know what we're going to do? Every week, I'm going to bring you in here, and we're going to look at this same mock draft. So he would bring me in, then I was 140 after a week. And he would bring me in, then I was 115 you know then i was 90 then i was 60 so that means i you know messing around with the second round then they had me mid second round you know then they had me late first round you know as the season continues to go along and i'm having a great senior year then it was lottery you know 1 through 13 then it was top 5 you know at the end of my at the end of my senior year last game of my senior year was at west virginia we lost in the nit when the best individual college basketball games I've ever played. And when I walked off that floor and went in the locker room and cried with my teammates because I knew I would never play with those guys again that I loved. I remember having a conversation with Coach Laranega and he told me at that particular time, you remember where we started? I can guarantee you this. When the NBA draft comes, you're going top five. So to think of where that started my senior year in college to where it ended in Morgantown, West Virginia, last game, it was... Only God. I've heard coaches use different
3: uh, motives of motivation, uh, different different uh, methods of motivation, I should say. Uh, I've
4: never heard this one before, where he actually shows you your ranking. I, I don't even know if it was a method of motivation, though. I don't even know if that's because the thing is, he also understood because of where I was at that point in my life. See, th- it's a big part of this that's missing. Coach Laranega recruited my brother. Right. So when Chris went to Bowling Green on his official visit, I went with him. That's where I met Jay Laranega, who I stayed at the Laranega's house. And that's where I met Jay Laranega, who was eventually became my backcourt partner at Bowling Green for four years. So he knew Chris, too. He he knew Chris really well. Basically, when I say all that to say this, he knew that I didn't need any motivation. I wasn't going to get motivated by a draft board and where I was sat at that particular time, my motivation was something bigger. My motivation was watching my brother be put in the ground. You know what I mean? And and something that we had we had dreamed about and talked about and accomplishing our dream together. So that that whole draft board thing, like eh, that's great and all. But my motivation was much bigger.
3: You have this outstanding uh final season at Bowling Green and uh you are picked fourth, right? By the Vancouver Grizzlies. What was that like? And what
4: were your first thoughts about Vancouver? I'll be completely honest. I didn't have any thoughts. Again, I am from the inner city of Columbus, Ohio. I am, from, I am a young black boy from the inner city of Columbus, Ohio. So to say, you know what? You've been drafted by Vancouver. I was like, oh, this, where is this place at again? <laughs> but then when I got there, it was the most beautiful place that I had seen. You know what I mean? Like, I'm going to tell you a crazy story. This is how I I know, Bill. This is how I am 100% sure. I should have known that this time that Vancouver was going to be a rough year for me, right? So when you get drafted, they fly you the next day to go do media and take your physical and all this kind of stuff. I kid you not. I get picked up from the airport by our, our trainer. We are on the way to the hospital to do my my physicals and all this stuff and we hit a biker I'm not talking about like we nudged a biker I'm talking about we hit a biker to the point where his head shattered the windshield. Oh no yeah so we are on the way right when I landed in Vancouver we are on our way to get my physicals done and I thought we killed a man I should have known right then it probably wasn't going to be the <laughs> best year for me.
3: How did you do all the media after that? Because how did to affect you. I mean, to, to see that and not, did you know eventually that God was going to be okay? Yeah, yeah eventually, okay.
4: because when we stopped and all of his change and stuff was all over the car. And I'm just sitting there like, oh my gosh. And I'm looking and looking, he's back there on the ground. His bike is there. His bike is all messed up. So we had to wait for the ambulance to come and all these kind of things. So... My time in Vancouver didn't get off to the best starts, <laughs> to say the least. One of the great things about this
3: podcast, I'm learning all these draft stories. Brent Barry was on a plane stuck for four hours mm-hmm. and, and didn't know that he was drafted in mm-hmm. 96. Um, uh, Matt Bonner told me that they were watching it on TV and they drafted him during a commercial. <laughs> so, oh, wow. Yes. Yeah, so wow. That wasn't good because he had no idea. Wow. So, so now you're telling me this story about the accident uh, the day after you get drafted. So that's kind of crazy stuff. Uh, you were in Vancouver mm-hmm. and... You end up in San Antonio. Take us through all that. (laughs)
4: Because you weren't in there for very long. No, I got a story for everything. (laughs) I have a story for everything. So me and Tim became really good friends after the draft. So prior to the draft was the um, Chicago pre-draft game. And I don't know if they did it by Daniels Duncan, by Alphabetical, but we were roommates. I obviously knew who Tim Duncan was because he would have been the number one pick in the draft if he had left his sophomore year or junior year watching him play on national television all the time. And um, I, I walked into the room having no idea who my roommate was and I walked in and nobody was there. And right after I walked in, he walked in. And if you know Tim, he has like this look. And I'm like, oh man, well, Tim, what's up, man? And he said hi, who are you? I was like that. <laughs> yeah. And I said, you know, hey, my name is, you know, Antonio Daniels. He was like, oh, okay, you the dude that be dunking all the time. Um, it's like, oh, yeah. At least he knew you. Right. So after that, we became, we became really, really good friends. And after my rookie year in Vancouver, I did a basketball camp in Vancouver, flew home to Columbus, Ohio, got off the plane, and went to my mom's house, and the phone rang. And my mom answered and she said, Hey, it's, it's Tim. And I was like, Tim at that time, people didn't have, you know, mobile phones and like, not like that. Not like we use them today. Sure. And, and um, I pick up the phone. and I'm like, hello. He said, Hey, what's up, man? It's Tim. I'm like, what's up? He said, Hey, I heard you coming to San Antonio to play with me. I said, okay, well, I, that's news to me. I hadn't heard that. <laughs> and he said, yeah, yeah, we, we trained for you today. Um, I said, oh well, just a little different. Let me call my agent. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> that's usually how you that, hear about these things. That wasn't supposed to be the first right? phone call, right? The first phone call you're supposed <laughs> to receive and hear about this thing shouldn't be from a guy that you're <laughs> going to play with. So after that, I called my agent and he said, yeah, um, it's looking like you're going to San Antonio and, and, After I fired my agent, I went to San Antonio.
3: (laughs) Is that right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Because you should have found out first. Right. You were, I don't know if you realize this, you were traded for a guy that was on the cover of Sports Illustrated, Felipe Felipe Lopez. Uh, Because
4: I remember the big hype about him when he was a high school kid in New York. I played against Felipe Lopez in college. Okay. When he was at at St. St. John's. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. I played against him at college. And if it was actually cool at that time to be able to leave like LeBron did, like Rashard Lewis did, like Kevin Garnett did, and Kobe did. Felipe Lopez would have left in. He had LeBron hype prior to LeBron.
3: Yes, he did. Uh, th- there was a lot of hype about him. Carl Herrera was also involved yep. in that trade. Okay, you come to San Antonio. You already know Tim. Mm-hmm. And now this whole thing is just starting up, right? right. Uh, okay, the championship season is just about to start and uh, coming up in a year. And uh, Malik Rose, I know you became very close with Malik. Of course, he's a homeboy of mine back in Philly. Uh, but uh, you started connecting with these guys mm-hmm. right away, didn't you, Dick?
4: Yeah, because it was different. Because it was a lockout season, so it's not like it wasn't normal. So we didn't report in September, you know. So I was actually in at home in Columbus until almost the turn of the year. So when that happened and I came down here and I I got here prior to training camp and all those things, and it was different for me because I was surrounded by vets. You know, I I tell people all the time, what gets lost in the term professional athlete is the term professional. People forget about that. The athlete part is easy because I've done that my whole life. But when you're around David and Sean, Elliot and Avery and Mario and Steve Kerr and Danny Ferry and Felton Spencer and Terry Porter, Jerome Kersey, all these kind of guys, they taught me the importance of being professional, showing up on time, preparation, doing your work, all of the not cutting corners, all of these other kind of things. And this is where that transition for me happened. As far as, you know, you have, I have different oh, okay, so this is what the NBA is about moments. You know what I mean? I remember my rookie year, I had two guys that on my Vancouver team that got traded and it was written on the chalkboard and they had two hefty <laughs> bats in their locker. So I walked in that day in February like, oh, so this is what the NBA is all about. And when I got here and I saw the professionalism, that was like my, my next, oh, okay. So this is how you win at this level.
3: Matt Bonner was on this last week, and he said that he thought the first open gym was going to be kind of a a shoot around like Concord High School back in New Hampshire somewhere, just kind of, you know, up and down the floor, just getting a sweat up. He said, no, everything was organized. Uh, Everything was set into certain structures. Uh, Certain scrimmages uh, were going to call for certain things to be happening, and everything was organized and together. There was weightlifting. There was running the hill in the back of the practice (laughs) facility and all these different things that he didn't think – uh, was going to happen right. long before training camp. This was an open gym in August,
4: but it's funny because now you're, now you're aging me, right? This is prior to the practice facility. So we actually played our pickup games at full life on Callahan and Babcock. I't I, I, I think now would' say um, planet fitness. right. So that's actually where we would meet and, and play our pickup games. And training camp was at
3: Trinity, wasn't it back then? Or in Carter Word? Where, where did you guys train? Which one was it? It was Trinity. It was Trinity. It was yeah, 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 it was uh-huh. it was
4: Trinity. And they had a man-made hill. You know, they had a man-made hill where you know, it wasn't like the hill that they have at the facility now, but just to get guys together and get up and down and get past the whole like that's David Robinson thing. Like <laughs> if you only knew how much my brother talked about you. You know, if you only knew how much my brother Um, adored you and now I am a teammate of yours once you get past that whole thing it was it was amazing
0: it's not about your highlight reel it's about reaching new heights each and every day it's not about if you sit in the nosebleeds or courtside it's about showing up
4: hey good game 25 you too man
0: it's not about wins it's about winning over others by treating them right. It's about more than money. Frost, the official bank of the San Antonio Spurs.
1: Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern. Only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
0: When you're an American Express Platinum card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot
1: that, shoot that!
3: What are your memories of the championship season? I know there's probably a hundred of them, but if you had to like just uh, grab one or two and say, wow, what I can't believe I went through that season and we won a title. And yes, it was a real weird truncated kind of season. Uh, But uh, to to host the trophy at the end of that, and that beat the New York Knicks at Madison square garden in the finals.
4: I'll tell you for me, one of the things that stands out is the bad start that we got off to. Mm -hmm. And I remember being in Houston and having a meeting on the bus, a players only meeting on the bus and Avery led the meeting Imagine um, that <laughs> it, it, I, I tell him now there's no way I could ever play for you as a player, because even when you're mad, it's hilarious. <laughs> it is hilarious. So he's leading the meeting. And basically the gist of the meeting was, you know, we obviously got off to a rough start. There are whispers that if we don't win here, that pop will probably be fired, you know? And then we go out after that game and run off. I don't even know what it was. You know, um incredible run. Yeah, but yeah. it's also crazy to think that what if we lost that game in Houston? That would have changed the course of NBA history. It would have. You know what I mean? You yeah. think about the San, you can't think about the San Antonio Spurs without thinking about Greg Popovich and those five championships. If we lose that game in Houston, if we don't have that players-only meeting and we happen to lose and they pull the trigger on Pop that changes everything moving forward. When you look at the Spurs now, I
3: I know, and this is a question I asked all the guys, and it's a little difficult because you've been part of this organization. Now, of course you're working for the Pelicans, but, um, when you look at the legacy of the Spurs, because this is the 50th anniversary, right. and you're too young to remember the old ABA and the mm-hmm. Spurs starting in the ABA, and I've had some older guys on to talk about that, which is kind of mind-boggling when you think about mm-hmm. that. We were just one of the four teams to go from the ABA and uh, uh, go to the NBA. But when you think of the legacy of the Spurs uh, over this 50-year period, well, what are your thoughts? My, my thoughts,
4: um, it, and, and it's, it, it sounds crazy to say, but I think about the 20 plus years of sustained success that they had when Tim got here. And maybe that's because it aligns with my draft class. You know what I mean? It it aligns with um, me actually coming to San Antonio, you know, prior to. And just the culture that was built. This is a, you know this, Bill, this is a copycat league. You know, it's a league that copycats something, you know. Okay, we want to try and do what that team is doing. How many coaches around the league have Spurs ties? right. And it's funny, we I was having a conversation with somebody about that yesterday. What is as a matter of fact, let me ask you the question. <laughs> what is considered? What do you consider when you talk about the Greg Popovich coaching tree? Is the Greg Popovich coaching tree people that Pop coached? Do they count? Sure. Or is it people that Coached with him that went on elsewhere. Yeah, I
3: think that it's wider than that. Taylor Jenkins is the head coach at Memphis. Right. He was an assistant at Austin. So he was in the franchise, he was in the organization. Okay. And even though he didn't work directly under Pop, I'm sure he was here for training camp and things like Mm -hmm. that. So he was certainly influenced by Pop.
4: That makes sense. What about Steve Kerr? Steve Kerr played for Pop twice. Right. Avery. Avery. Yep, sure. But he, but he never coached with them. No, he didn't. And but this it, was the conversation I, I, that we I, were having.
3: Yeah, I, I guess you can kind of you know figure it out the way, the way you want to. Right. How about guys in the front office? I mean, there's people all over the front office, sure. everywhere in the league, you know, from Dell Dempsey. You just name guys in any front office. There's guys that have some uh, ties uh, with the Spurs. Before I let you go, though, I did want to ask you about um, what you're doing now. Obviously, you've made mm-hmm. the transition. You did very well for a guy <laughs> that didn't think he did very well at uh, broadcasting school at Syracuse. Uh, you're with the Thunder, and now you're... You're with the Pelicans. You're working with our old friend, Joel Myers. Uh, what has it been like for you to make that transition and stay in the game?
4: Well, it's been great for me, honestly, because um, this is right in my wheelhouse. Um, as you can tell, this half hour went really fast because I talk a lot. <laughs> but, you know, starting and, and you know, with radio, with Sirius XM NBA radio and having my own radio show every day nationally, like that's that's awesome. But then that prepared me for TV. So when they tell you, you have to feel five minutes, I like, oh my gosh, that's nothing. I've been filming three hours every day. You know what I mean? So, but this is, it, it, what I like about this is I, I get an opportunity to still be involved with the game, to develop relationship with guys. But when it's all said and done and the game is over, my body's not taking the punishment and I'm going home undefeated.
3: Yeah, and if you're in coaching... Uh, wins and losses would pile up and it, yeah, obviously whatever team we cover, we want that team to win for sure, but you don't have to carry it with you if it's a
4: loss, but, but also bill, you know, honestly, my, my job, my job and the strength of my job is dictated on the job that I do. If I'm not good at my job, I can be fired and I, and I'll, I'll take responsibility for that. So it's my job to prepare. And, and do things the right way. From a coaching perspective, I can be a great coach, but my team is not playing well. You know who has to fall on that sword? Frank Vogel. That guy. There you go. You know what I mean? That's so, a good name to just pull out of the hat. because right. It's happened to Frank a couple of times. Exactly. Yeah. So so for me, like I, my, my job right now and the, my job security is completely and solely dedicated on the job that I do.
3: One of the things I think that you picked up here is the importance of relationships.
4: It's nothing more important uh, Because life.
3: it's always good to see you, and I really do appreciate you taking time out and, and joining us for Sound of Spurs podcast. And uh, AD, seriously, I look forward to seeing you every time, and uh, hope we have a good game tonight. Okay. For sure. <laughs>
4: appreciate you, brother. All as right. always. Always.
3: That is Antonio Daniels. This is Sound of Spurs podcast presented by Frost Bank. I'm Bill Schoening.
1: So long, everybody.
0: 6 p.m. Book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com/slash-with-amex. Terms apply.
2: Whether it's your first time betting or you've been gambling for years, have a plan and know the game. Be aware of the rules and odds before you gamble